Welcome to the Silver Screen Happy Hour with the Wiegand Brothers. I'm Chris Wiegand. In each show, my brother Jerome and I discuss two movies, something old and something new, and enjoy a drink that pairs well with those films. So grab a beverage and join us for this episode of the Silver Screen Happy Hour. On today's show, my brother and I will be discussing two movies, um, Thelma and Louise, 1991, and Promising Young Woman from 2020. Um, I was going to do a reading from Google, a description of both the films, and that's just boring. So I am going to suggest you pause the podcast right now and go ahead and watch the trailers to both of those films. Just pull them up on YouTube and watch the trailers. I'm sure uh, just about everybody is familiar with Thelma and Louise, but it's it's worth it just to pull it up, uh, even though I think maybe the trailer might even feel dated now. It's been so long since I came out. But go ahead and watch the trailers and then come back for the show. So right off the bat, here's the two. Here's the biggest difference between the two films. Um, Promising Young Woman's um, Cassie is a lot like Louise from Thelma and Louise. Though Thelma, to me, is the lead of Thelma and Louise. It's her movie. It's her story. Um, you know, it's both actresses got nominated for Best Actress. They both share the title. Uh, it's about their journey. Fine. It's Thelma's movie. Um, Thelma has one of the biggest character developments on film since Michael Corleone in The Godfather 1. Uh, where she starts off as this meek housewife and where she ends up is night and day different. Now, every character in every film goes through changes. They learn things on their journey. She does more than learn things. She completely becomes somebody else. And um, so in that sense, she's a lot different from Cassie. However, the story structure uh, is very, very similar. Um when, when, now, when I say theme, when I talk about theme, I'm talking about a screenwriter's theme. Okay, it's different from when, when, like, when Roger Ebert says theme, he means you know the overall film, uh, sort of like uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Martin Scorsese's pretty much has the same theme in every one of his movies. It's Catholic guilt. Catholic guilt is a is a is a running theme in just about every Scorsese movie ever made. Um, that's different from what I'm talking about. When I say theme, I'm talking about, from a screenwriter point of view, the theme is a central uh, question that needs to be answered. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a question that is presented to the lead character. It's never from the lead. It's always a question some way, somehow, maybe not a question, maybe a statement, but it's presented to the lead in the first five pages, which means the first five minutes of the film. And they have to spend the rest of the movie trying to figure out what the answer is going to be. Um, so what was that in, uh, promising young so woman in, well, I was actually going to start with Thelma and Louise. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> get, the, we'll get there. And Thelma and Louise, um, in the first five minutes, she's on the phone call. First of all, it's a great scene where she's in the kitchen and you can tell, um, the director, uh, Ridley Scott, uh, does a great job of showing you how nervous she is about taking this trip because of how many times she reaches into the fridge and grabs a candy bar, takes a bite, puts it back in. Mm-hmm. turns around, is talking on the phone, grabs candy bar, takes a bite, puts it back in. She does this like four or five times in the same phone call. But anyway, she um, there's a point where she's talking about how nervous she is about taking this trip. And Louise says, uh, don't be such a baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if you really watch the film and you map out the scenes, it is now textbook screenwriting is every other scene like mm-hmm. every other scene you're answering one way to the to the theme question and each uh, each other scene you're answering the other way so mm-hmm. for instance in this segment you would say uh, you know louise is is uh, uh, it, will thelma ever stop being a baby mm-hmm. okay will she won't she it's almost every other scene even 
as the film is progressing and she is turning into this other person, mm -hmm. she still has moments where she's the baby. Right, right. And Louise has to kind of look out for her and take care of her. It's like an emotional tug of war. It, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And that's, it, it's funny you should say that because that's almost what textbook screenwriting is. Character's development is an emotional tug of war. Um, did you look that up on the internet? No. That's like, that's, that's like exactly what they call it. Um, it's this, it's this give and take. And that's what creates the tension for screenwriting and for the, for, for the characters and makes it entertaining their journey because it's always will they or won't they? Will they or won't they? Um, the, um, I, I would have to look at the actual line that I believe her boss gives to Cassie. In Promising Young Woman, uh, mm -hmm. the first scene where they're in the coffee house, mm -hmm. something about her getting out and having fun or something like that. Or, you you know, you need a man or something. I, I'd have to go back and look at it. And that's what Bo Burnham's character is. He represents the will she, won't she. And as you watch that film, it's almost every other scene. She has a good moment with Bo Burnham's character. And then she'll have a moment where she's out trying to rage against the guys. Right. And there's this constant tug of war of can she actually settle down and be a, you know, a nice, you know, not crazy <laughs> woman for this guy? Can she have a good relationship? And then the flip side is, you know, no. Can she just continue on doing what she's doing? Um, both films have uh, come to a head at the midpoint scene. And that's usually what happens. Right. At a midpoint scene, a uh, character generally achieves or at least almost achieves or sees the end of the tunnel for their their tangible goal, what they want. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, the second half of the film, everything goes to shit and they have to uh, it drives them to their spiritual goal. OK, uh, what they didn't know they wanted. We've talked about this before. Thelma and Louise. um, there are so many scenes. Let me see if I, if I wrote, wrote down these notes. Um, uh, don't be such a child is what she tells her. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, so there are scenes where uh, I'm trying to think of an example. So when she robs someone, Thelma robs the liquor store. She is alpha Thelma. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, almost the very next scene. Um, Oh, I can't remember what the next scene is, but I remember as I was watching it, the very next scene, she was back to being baby Thelma. Mm -hmm. And then the cop pulls her over. Right. Right. The cop <laughs> pulls him over. She becomes alpha Thelma again. Right. And then uh, when Louise is on the phone with Slocum, he says, I don't think you're all going to make it to Mexico. <laughs> and she realizes Thelma told Brad Pitt's character where they were going. She becomes baby Thelma again. She's getting yelled at. Yeah. She has this these moments where Louise yells at her about something, and she has sort of this tail between her legs. Oh, I'm sorry I screwed up. I'm sorry I screwed up. I'm baby Thelma. Hmm. But in the other scenes, when she's wielding her gun and she's raging, she's alpha Thelma. And if you watch that film with that in mind, you'll see it's almost literally every other scene. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's give and take, give and take until she fully – it's kind of like when they say uh, – you know, how Vader stopped being both and had to be consumed completely by the dark side. Right. Thelma, by the end, there is no more baby Thelma. Mm -hmm. That baby Thelma has been eliminated and she has completely been consumed by Alpha Thelma. Right. So, I almost wish we had this conversation before I watched it because full disclosure for the listeners – I've lived 29 years and I've never seen Thelma and Louise until a couple of weeks ago. You mean 29 um, years after the movie came out? Yes, after the movie. Well, you I, are I, not 29 years old. No, no, right. That, exactly. <laughs> Make that clear for the audience. The movie came out a year after I graduated from high school. So, you know, yeah. I never saw the movie. Um, so, but as you're talking, I'm, I'm replaying. I just saw it a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, it's crazy. Um that progression it's it's brilliant um storytelling you know so the false victory is what they call the midpoint scene because the character the main character thinks they're getting what they want right mm. uh again even though it's thelma's story 
um, halfway through Thelma and Louise, around the midpoint scene, almost exactly. I mean, and when you say midpoint scene, you'll be you'll be sickened to know <laughs> almost exactly. If it's a two hour movie, it always hits right at that hour mark, and you're like, "Holy crap!" It really is right in the middle. <laughs> um, they do that almost every time. So around the midpoint scene is where uh, Louise makes the decision: I'm going to get the money from Jimmy, and I'm going to Mexico, mm-hmm. right? Um, that seemed, that's, they call that a false victory because all their problems appear to be solved. Mm -hmm. We have money and we're going to Mexico. Any crimes we've committed up until now wiped clean. It's called a false victory because that shit ain't going to happen. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, similarly, Cassie and promising young woman right around the midpoint scene of that film she uh, has there's it's right after they have this little musical interlude where they play Paris Hilton's stars are blind. And it's like a little video uh, of them singing together in the pharmacy. Right. Almost right after. And, and there's it's a montage, right? It's a montage with Paris Hilton song and they're singing together in the pharmacy and right. they're laying in bed being goofy. This is her midpoint scene. It's yeah. a false victory. She, she thinks found, she found love. I found a guy. Yep. I found a guy that's going to make me forget about all this shit. Right. Well, of course, you know, that's not going to happen. That's right. not reality. She hasn't learned anything yet. She's still on her journey. Talk too much about the ending because we don't want to ruin any endings. Um, but it, it takes them on their second half journey, which is what is generally known in screenwriting, or at least Blake Snyder's screenwriting. He was the screenwriting guru who came up with all these terms. The bad guys closing in. Or, uh, yeah, it's the bad guys closing in. Is was what the second half of the film is, is where you just come out of your victory, your false victory, and then everything starts to go to shit little by little by little until you reach the all is lost. Now, there's always a moment of, you know, all is lost. Right? Yeah. Uh, again, I don't want to get into too much without talking about the ending. So we can kind of just sum it up with their progression until they reach yeah. their, t- their, their spiritual goal. But one of the interesting things uh, about uh, connecting between these two films is both directors, Ridley Scott and um, uh, Emerald Fennell, who mm-hmm. wrote and directed Promising Young Woman. Right. The character, the casting choices yeah. are interesting. Yeah, we talked very, about very this. Interesting. This, is, this is fascinating. Yes, it's, it's actually very fascinating. So if you look at Thumb and Louise, um, the good guys she chooses, in, in uh, Ridley Scott, sorry, the, the good guys that Ridley Scott chooses to be the good guys in Thumb and Louise are Michael Madsen... <laughs> And Harvey Keitel, whose careers are mostly badasses, right? They're usually bad guys, right? Um, and and the and the bad guys he he chooses he casts for. You've got Christopher McDonald, who up until then wasn't really a huge name. He's probably best known as Goose in Grease too. Yeah, right. He hadn't done uh, Happy Gilmore yet, right? Right, right, right. But, <laughs> but that's still, what I remember him for. But still, comedy. Shooter, Shooter McGavern. <laughs> right, but still, comedy, right? right? Yeah. Brad Pitt, also relative unknown at the time, but if he was known at all, it was for you know having these boyish aw shucks good looks yeah. and little bit parts in movies where he was aw shucks and you know he was <laughs> you know you would never see him as being a bad guy. Um, uh, Timothy Carhart. Who, you know, again, not a huge name. Yeah. But this is a guy who appeared in Ghostbusters. He was the uh, he was the the cellist or the violinist or somebody that was in Sigourney Weaver's orchestra band that Bill Murray was making fun of, right? <laughs> so kind of a silly. Uh, he was uh, he was one of the Amish people in Witness. No, he wasn't. In, no, he wasn't the Amish person. He was a good cop in Witness, um, and he was one of the. Uh, uh, Navy, Navy seaman in Hunt for Red October. Small roles, not a huge name, mm. but not a bad guy. Right. But by, by any stretch of the imagination, anytime somebody might have seen him, said, "Oh, I know that face." You've only seen him in movies that you like that he was likable in. Right. 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 Ridley Scott casts him as a rapist. <laughs> so, right. um, so he flips yeah. you know, what audiences are expecting when they see faces on screen that you might not know their name. Oh, where have I seen them before? But he's flipping it to where I know where I've seen Harvey Keitel before. Good God. <laughs> yeah. Taxi driver and, you know, uh, whatever. So um, uh, Emerald Fennell does the same thing. 
Okay. The almost the exact same thing. Um, Bo Burnham. Right. Who, uh, you know, let's talk about the bad guys in, in this film. Bo Burnham's a stand up comic. Mm-hmm. Um, Max Greenfield. Who is is one of the guys at the at the party at the end? The the his his number two guy, right? Yeah, his number two guy that helps him out of out of problems. Yeah, he's in. Uh, uh, he's in. Um, he was on a comedy show, a sitcom. Yeah, well, I was just uh, watching it with Hannah. Uh, um, what is it? Uh, ah, it's gonna kill me. Our listeners are like, come on. I know they're probably screaming at the thing. I keep thinking Gone Girl, but that's a movie. New, new Girl. New Girl. Okay, so it's New Girl. Um, right. So he's, he's that right. And then, um, uh, Molly Shannon, who's not technically a bad guy, but she is a resistor. She's the yeah. mother of the victim. Yeah. Yeah. And every time she's, uh, Cassie is going to her for support. She is, is, oh is, is, is an obstacle. Yeah. Move on. Don't open this Pandora's box, blah, blah, blah. We get on with your life. Get away. She's from SNL. That's what people know her from. Right. So all the comedy actors and actresses are being used as obstacles in this film. Right. And you look at the two guys <laughs> that you would consider would be the most sympathetic. Alfred Molina, who, if he's known for uh, anything outside of supporting roles, is for being the villain in Spider-Man 2. Right. Yeah. Uh, Doc Ock, right? He's Doc Ock. Yeah. And then the dad, her dad, who is the most loving, caring, honest, oh, he's the, her biggest supporter. Too bad he's a psychotic prison guard in Shawshank Redemption. Right. Like, and that's where people know him from. People look at Alfred Molina. Of course, when I see Alfred Molina, I see the the guy that tried to screw over uh, Harrison Ford at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wouldn't give him his whip. Oh, yeah. I forgot that was so, him. Yeah. So that's wow. what I, I But it's still bad guy. And and that's what I see when I see Alfred Molina. I think of that. I think of Doc Ock. I think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think of movies where he was a bad guy, right? Or did bad things. And when I see Clancy, uh, what's his name? Clancy Brown. Did I get that right? He's you know Shawshank's prison guard. Yeah. Well, I mean, what else were you going to think of? Right. That's what we think of when we see him. Now he's been the funny thing is he's been in a million movies, but he but he's also been he was in fact he was the bad guy in uh, this. Uh, Shoot to Kill, which was an 80s movie with Tom Berenger and Kirstie Alley where they get lost in the forest. <laughs> He's a kidnapper slash diamond heist murderer or whatever. So, you know, I've only known this guy to be a bad guy in every right. movie I've seen him in. Yeah. And so she interestingly casts him as the most sympathetic male in the movie. Right, right. Um, so, and both those movies share that same trait, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, when you pointed that, that out to me, it just, I thought it was brilliant, you know. Um, so let's... Can we shift gears? I, w- I sure. wanted to talk about like, so I was going to say in the intro and I'll, I probably did as I edited this, but um, you know, when we talk about movies and we get together and we're, we're having drinks, we didn't even talk about our drinks to the mm. podcast audience. So, and there's a reason why I chose tequila. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So we, we pick a drink that has something to do with the movies uh, that we watched and they talk about that for a second. Well, they're going to Mexico in yes. Thelma and Louise. And she says, we're going to be drinking margaritas by the sea, mamacita. Right. Yep, and we're drinking and, uh, margaritas now. <laughs> right. And in <laughs> Promising Young Woman, I don't I don't know if it was exactly tequila, but I mean, come on. There's so much booze in that movie Yeah, where she's, where she's uh, feigning being a drunk woman. Oh, that's another thing I missed. I forgot to mention. One of the so-called attempted rapist guys that she really wants to f- do this fake out on and put in his place yeah. is the kid from Superbad. It's McLovin. <laughs> when you see his face, all you think of is that's McLovin, <laughs> right? The lovable kid. He can't do any harm to anybody. Yeah. He's about to rape this girl because he thinks she's drunk. Right. You know, right. so that's yeah. j- yet another example. I forgot to write that one down. So, so what I was going to say is, you know, when we talk movies, we're usually cutting it up. We're having fun. We're drinking, you know, um, these two movies are super weighty in top. The topics are super in- intense. Um, Absolutely. It's one, th- I mean, especially for two guys to be sitting here talking about, you know, promising young woman and Thelma and Louise. Um, we got to be careful <laughs> because, um, you know, I mean, you, the the reaction, the reason I wanted to see Promising Young Woman is because of the way you d- 
it hits you so hard as a dad of young yes. daughters. So yes. talk about that for a second. Just, I mean, and it did me too. I have older daughters that are, you know, teenage or older in their twenties now. And it's still, it, it, it infuriated me. Um, but yeah, talk about your reaction when you saw a promising young woman. Well, first I'll take you back to Thelma and Louise and, 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 and talk about how I've bridged over the time. Mm-hmm. I, f- first of all, Thelma and Louise came out in 91. It's my second favorite film of 1991. Mm-hmm. Anybody that knows me at all knows what my number one favorite film <laughs> of 1991 is. And Tell the involves, audience. It involves a dude who eats people. <laughs> so, uh, named Anthony Williams. Hopkins. Yes, Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> of course. So, uh, which oddly enough goes full circle because the year promising young woman is up for all these Oscars. Anthony Hopkins wins best actor. Yeah. So every, everything is connected. Um, so, uh, my second favorite film of 91, but it, at the time I didn't have kids. I didn't have kids up until five years ago. Right. Thelma and Louise never hit me on that level. Right. It struck me on a different level. It struck me on a, a what an asshole this husband is to treat his wife like she's a child. Yeah. The attempted rape uh, obviously is bothersome, but I wasn't a father of children where it affected me in a, in a separate way. If it, it affected me as rape is, you know, rape is bad. Rape, rape is terrible. It's the things we've always been, you know, taught by our parents. Thank God yeah. that we have parents that taught us right and wrong. Um, but I was always affected by Christopher McDonald's just completely heartless character. And, um, watching it again recently for this, for this podcast, I realized my favorite shot, my mm. favorite shot of the entire film of Thelma Louise is it's after they shoot up the uh, the rig that has carrying the fuel, yeah. right? The, the pervert guy. Yeah. They shoot it up and it's on fire and everything. There's this scene where a chopper is circling um, the guy screaming, you know, they shot up my rig! <laughs> and you see this chopper circling, but over over the radio, you hear them giving out the, the all points bulletin, right? They're giving out the APB, the description of the two women. Mm-hmm. And they describe Louise Sawyer. And when they get to Thelma Dickinson, there's this real, there's a shot of the husband sitting there at the bar of his house. Yeah. And it's a close up and it's zooming in slowly. I remember that. Yeah. While they're doing the overhead of describing Thelma Dickinson's uh, you know, weight, height, look, you know, because she's wanted now by the law. He's got this so defeated look on his face, tears in his eyes, like, what have I done? Yeah. Right? Yeah. How could I have been better? And and as I watched that movie, so I watched it again, I realized that is my favorite shot. I've always loved that shot, but I realized that that was my favorite shot of the whole movie because to me, the story was was her and him. Yeah. And how, because of him, she needed to break away like this. Yeah. Um, and even Louise says it. She goes, you brought something out in me. And Louise says, it's always been in you. You know, it wasn't me. It's always been in you. I just helped you find it or something like that. Yeah. That tells me um, that Thelma did have this adventurous spirit when she was younger. And this husband killed that. Right. He killed it. <laughs> um when I saw Promising, now when I watch Thelma and Louise, it hits me as a father. Right. Now it's not so much the husband, it's it's the rape scene or the right. attempted rape scene. Um, Promising Young Woman hit me, um, yeah, because I have two daughters, uh, young ones, three and a half and five. And um, it was one of those films, um, Trial of the Chicago 7 did this to me too a little bit, where I'm watching the film and I'm just getting angry. I'm yeah. getting angrier and angrier and angrier. Movies are supposed to be entertainment. They're supposed to be fun. <laughs> and I'm watching this film and I'm just getting angry. I'm mm-hmm. getting more and more pissed off. And the and the, the the frustrating part is when you watch a movie like Trial of the Chicago 7, you're like, oh, man, those guys were assholes. They treated mm-hmm. him like this. The judge was an asshole. Blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. But when you watch promising young woman and you're a straight white male in america right you're looking in the mirror right right it's 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 it hits you in a way of holy shit yeah like you start thinking about yourself like have i ever have i ever inappropriately said something or did something uh you know like what you start replaying your whole life in your head like oh my god like i hope i never did anything 
that, and that's the scary part. It might have been something I said or did was so insignificant to me. I don't even remember. Maybe it, it gave some poor girl an eating disorder. Who knows? You know what I mean? Like you never know right, right. the gravity of the little things that are little to you, the great effect that they might have on a person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what happens to the victim in Promising Young Woman? It didn't even happen to Cassie. Right. Right. But she saw what it did to her friend. Right. It How destroyed it, her. Yeah. It destroyed her a little bit by a little bit by a little bit until it was too late. Um, and so you watch that film and it hits you in a way of, my God, like, uh, not only is it self-reflective of any man that watches the movie, but more so um, sort of like protector guy came out. Yeah. All, I, all else I could think about was my daughters. Like, Jesus, there's... How many millions of men out there that are just like this? Right. And I consider myself a great guy, but I could have done something or said something that yeah. seemed meaningless to me yeah. in my youth, my childhood, my teens, whatever, that affected somebody. Yeah. I mean, I, not to the extent of raping them and having my friends videotape it, you know, not right. to that extent, but, uh, you know, but yeah. But still, I mean, so for me, it was, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was thinking back to when I was a teenager because I used to get drunk and, and do stupid shit all the time. And, and I know I hurt there, there were females in my life that I hurt and I was like, I was kind of like, it brought all that back. And I'm like, man, I, I'm, th I thank God that I didn't become those guys as I grew, you know, I quit drinking when I was a teenager and, um, <laughs> not, till now. And then started up again. Till now, but but <laughs> you know, but I'm you know I was just I was immature and but it's not an excuse for the for the asshole that I was you know so sure. even though it was so long ago, it brought all those emotions back for me. I'm like wow you know, um, and and I just and but I did have this this part of me was just praising God that I, I didn't go there as an adult, right. you know what I mean? Right. And, and, but I could have, and that's what like you're, I think you're talking about cause you see yourself in these douchebags, <laughs> you know? Cause I'm like, Oh, well that could have been me. Right. So you, so you have like a two, you have like a two prong effect. The first prong is just like that. Mm -hmm. First half of the movie, you're, you're self-reflecting. You're like, Oh my right. God, this, this movie is really like a mirror. Like it's making me really look at myself. Yeah. And, and then the second half, once, once you've come to the, to where you got to, where you're like, well, thank God I never became as bad as them. I never, I never became a rapist. I never right. videotaped myself raping somewhere had my friends. Video. Once you get over that and you're like, okay, I'm not that bad. Then you start that second prong, which is holy oh, shit. Oh, my daughters. <laughs> but I have daughters. Right. And God knows who's out there. Yeah. What predator is out there just waiting to victimize my daughter? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I said the second I got done, I told V, you know, we're, we're getting a five-year-old Vivi into judo this summer. Like yeah. we're, it's, I'm going to start it early. I, you know, by the time she, uh, this is the line I've been saying for a while now. By the time she goes to college, I want her to be able to rip somebody's trachea out. So, um, <laughs> right. because I, I <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, I've got, this is how sick it's become. I've gone to line and, and seen <laughs> if you can schedule and at what age is appropriate to schedule, uh, stick fighting classes and knife fighting classes. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, become hey. like, I, want, I almost want to build my children into a machine. I know I can't do that. She's got to enjoy life. You know, yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, put this is, dark shroud over your children at such right. a young age that the world is nothing but evil. I yeah. want her to have fun and enjoy life, but I'm going to slide in little things like, Hey, let's go do judo. That'll be fun. Huh? You know, I want her to do things that when she's older, she'll understand why I did them. Well, if they, when they get older and if they do want to get a concealed weapons permit, they can always call their uncle Josh. <laughs> Cause I know he'll be, he'll be eager to teach my, uh, my wife, Jesse, for the listeners. Um, she had a, meeting today um, with a bunch of young women downtown Port Huron and um, one of the women um, she started her own um, it's a concealed weapons permit training but she only does it for um, women 
and she specializes in in training of women who have been sexually abused and assaulted because most women from what she said most women who have been abused or assaulted like that um they don't they they want to they, they consider getting a firearm but they're afraid of going through the training in many cases by men mm-hmm. you know and it makes sense i was like wow and so she was just telling me about this woman's business and how she it's almost a ministry which is kind of kind of funny to think of someone teaching someone how to handle a gun and and be proficient with firearm and confident and all that is a ministry but um but it's really in what she, how she um she she really does minister to the women who have been through that. And um, I thought it was awesome, you know, and I know it's not for everybody. And, but, um, but knowing someone that has been uh, raped or assaulted like that, I, I understand the, uh, the desire to, for, you know, for protection and, um, but yeah, for our daughters, you don't even want them to have to have to go, go there, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's scary. So this movie I thought was a masterpiece. I was really bummed. It didn't get best picture. Um, and I really enjoyed. I'm glad you feel the same way. Yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed the, um, the Chicago seven. Um, I'm sure the one I didn't even see the one that won, but, um, I'm sure that was good. Um, it, 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 it was, it was overrated. Yeah. It was overrated. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it's, it's like this every year, every year. Oh, wait, wait. Which one won? Nomadland. I actually did see that, and you're right. It was, I thought it was overrated. It was, a great pe- it was a great piece of art. It was depressing. I, I, thought- have, no, <laughs> I have no problem giving it best cinematography. It was amazingly shot. Yeah. It was, it was filmed amazingly. It was great production, set design, all that stuff. Great acting. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, a bit of a... <sighs> I love Frances McDormand. Let me, let me preface this by saying... I love Frances McDormand. And um, ever since she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in Mississippi Burning back mm-hmm. in 1988, I've been a fan. Yeah. Um, love that she won for Fargo. Fargo was probably my favorite movie of 96. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but to give her three leads is still hard for me to sit with because uh, n- nobody has three leads except for Catherine Hepburn. I mean, yeah. Not even Jack has three leads. Well, I mean, let me rephrase. It hadn't been like that for a while. Daniel Day-Lewis finally got three leads. And I thought that was a big deal because I always said that was the only reason why Tom Hanks didn't win for Castaway. The only reason why he didn't win for Castaway. They weren't ready yet to give somebody three leads. Not even Jack has three leads. Oh, jeez. Okay? Meryl Streep doesn't have three leads. He deserved it for Castaway, I think. They each have three Oscars. Yeah. But one of Nicholson's is for supporting and one of Meryl Streep's is for supporting. So they were so if those two don't have lead the three leads, <laughs> and at the time Daniel Day Lewis only had one. Yeah. You know, it was a stretch for the Academy to say, Okay, Tom Hanks, we're gonna anoint you a place no man has ever gone before <laughs> and only one woman, which is Catherine Hepburn. They weren't ready for that yet. So he didn't win. Right. So, and then when Daniel Day Lewis won for Lincoln, I was like, "Wow!" I was like, "Man, they they finally turned the page. They gave a dude three leads. That's amazing." <laughs> I didn't think I'd see it again. Yeah. yeah. And for Frances McDormand to get one Oscar away from Catherine Hepburn, like that's <laughs> that's huge. Especially since, as much as I love Promising Young Woman, um, Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom might have been the best performance of the year. Mm. Uh, and I think with a three woman race like that, that's on my list too. I haven't seen that. And she, she is so awesome. I love uh, you. You had her, you had Carrie Mulligan, of course, from promising young woman Mm -hmm. and Francis McDormand of those three, those, it was the considered a three person race. I really thought Francis McDormand was third on that list. I really, (laughs) to me, it was between Viola Davis and, and Carrie Mulligan. That's, Mm -hmm. that's what it was for me. And I was surprised to see that. Um, but as I started to say before I got sidetracked, which I often do on these things, (laughs) um, every year there's a movie that I love more than everything else. Yeah. And it rarely wins best picture. Now, when it does, it's like the stars have aligned and it's like, finally, people agreed with me. Birdman was one of them. Birdman was my favorite movie of the year it came out. Everybody I talked to hated it. V hated it. Her friends hated it. Everybody hated it. They said, the worst movie I ever seen. I loved it. And when it won Best Picture, I was ecstatic. Uh, when Braveheart won in 95, it wasn't supposed to win. Sense and Sensibility was supposed to win. Hmm. It was between Sense and Sensibility and Apollo 13. Yeah. 
Braveheart wasn't supposed to win Best Picture. Yeah, it was supposed to win Best Director, but it wasn't supposed to win Best Picture. And of course, Silence of the Lambs. Those are some of the right. examples of films that were my favorite of the year and and won. And that almost never happens. Yeah. Uh, sometimes my favorite of the movie, my favorite movie of the year doesn't even get nominated. Yeah. Uh, like Midsummer. I don't. I can't remember what year that came out. Three three was, years ago. Three years ago. That wasn't last year. No, 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 no. This was a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Midsummer was my favorite movie of the year by far. It got zero nominations, (laughs) but um, it was my favorite. It was my favorite movie of the year. It came out. Uh, So Promising Young Woman was that movie for me. And I always know. I always know while I'm watching it. I don't have to wait for the movie to be over. I'll know in the first half hour if I'm going to love a movie. Hmm. Like, I can just see where it's going already. Um one well, more thing I'm, prom- I'm promising. I went into it. I went into it not knowing anything really besides <clears throat> besides the, you know, you talking about how much it affected you um, because I, I just saw the trailers and the trailers did a good job not really giving anything away except for that she's doing some kind of revenge. And Most I assume I assumed, it, of the- I assumed it was a slasher. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are critical of the trailer. They said it's misleading. They thought she takes these guys out or she fakes being drunk, and when they take her home, she kills them. Yeah. Like That's exactly was thinking what I thought. It was like and, and, I don't think it, and I don't think it's a problem to tell the audience, hey, that's it's not a slasher movie. You know, more people, right. I think, will watch it if they know it's yeah. not a slasher movie, because a lot of people don't like slasher movies, you know? Yeah, but it's also unrealistic. I think what she does in this film is way more realistic. Yeah. She scares the shit out of people, yes. you know, um, and every one of them, you know, has the same reaction when she goes from slurring drunk to what the fuck are you doing? Like she almost says the same thing. And then they're always like, whoa, like, like it's scary for them, yeah. you know, yeah. um, which I thought is, 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 was awesome. It's I'm glad it's not a slasher film. And another thing that they tease you is in the opening credits, she's walking down the street with red on her and you're like, she just killed somebody else. She's got blood all over her. And then the camera goes up and she's eating a hot dog and the ketchup is coming off and it's just ketchup. Like it's another little, ah, gotcha. This is not a slasher film. Right. You know, it's just little things like that. But what I was going to say, another thing about the contrast, we talked about the casting as a contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Emerald Fennell shoots Promising Young Woman um, with a huge contrast in lighting. Everything, I mean, look at the pharmacy that they're in with the fluorescent lights. The coffee shop that she works in is very, is always well lit with, everything uh-huh. is, is supposed to feel very safe. There's very few dark moments shot. Yeah. Um, and, and it does that sort of like we're telling you this this very sad story with a very dark subject matter. But unlike Seven, which shot the whole movie as if, you know, they were trying to send the theme across in setting. We're going to make it raining the entire film. You know, um, they're 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 giving you almost a sense of uh, and this happens all the time. Thelma Louise does it as well. Mm hmm. You know, um, what is the backdrop? What is the production design of Thelma and Louise Journey? It's a barren desert, right? It's almost like there's nothing out there for them and they just yeah. don't know it yet. You know, really Scott's making a, a, a theme here. He's, he's making a point yeah. when he shoots it that way. Elmore Fennell flips it and says, no, I want to shoot it like everything's happy. Like this is a romantic comedy. I want to shoot it like it's a sitcom. Bright lights, white walls, you know. Uh, bright lights, uh, white walls, all this stuff. She's shooting it to completely contrast what uh, what the reality of the story is, what's actually happening. Um, and, you know, again, Seven is a perfect example of uh, Darius Kanji shot Seven. He was a cinematographer of that. Um, it's a perfect example of how am I going to tell the seediness of this setting? Yeah, that, that movie was oppressive to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it was it it felt oppressive every every yeah. the movie seven every scene is dreary and it's raining and it's dark yeah. until everything's the, until the end everything seems gross doesn't yeah. it like until the until the end the, the big reveal the climax of the movie it's sunny it's sunny but but <laughs> but it's sunny but where are they they're out in the middle of nowhere yeah they're in the middle of nowhere the, again there's something empty, in the box <laughs> empty feeling though as if they're yeah. not going to, there's nothing out the, when i see desert as a setting right i think it's my way it's the filmmaker's way of saying there's nothing out there for these people 
Yeah. There's no happy ending. There's nothing out there for these characters. Yeah. You almost never see a movie that's set completely in a desert that has a happy ending. <laughs> it's, I mean, the English patient. Like none of these movies have happy endings, right? <laughs> it's the, it's the filmmaker saying there's nothing out there at all for these people. Right. It's nothing but a bad ending. Hey, Star Wars starts in a desert, ends in a jungle. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> well. If you assume that <laughs> A New Hope is the start of this first movie. Well, I am. Return of the, the Jedi original is the last three, movie. The original three. That's okay, so you're okay, just totally really, discounting six other films. Absolutely. <laughs> We're really going off now. So I know you're... You know, it's, which is interesting. Let me get real back to Star Wars for one second. <laughs> that the best thing, the greatest thing to happen to the prequels was the last three Disney movies. That was the best possible thing because now people hate them so much less. They hate the <laughs> Disney movies so much more. People actually love the prequels now. Yeah. Now people are willing to say Star Wars exists as a one through six. Yeah. You know, it used to be, we hate the prequels. It's still just three, four, and five. <laughs> to me, one through three never happened. And then Disney made these three movies. Now everyone's like, you know, we've been really hard on the prequels. We should, we should include them. They're, 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 they're good. But there's a quality now. to those prequels. If we're going to go off, let's go off. There's a quality to those prequels. It's just like, they're so bad. They're awesome. That kind of I, thing. I enjoy the prequels. <laughs> I love the prequels. I love them a hell of a lot more than I love the Disney movies. Okay. I'll tell you that much. Young Anakin's um, lines sucked. <laughs> well, George Lucas is not a writer. I, well, let me rephrase. George Lucas is a fantastic writer of story. He's a terrible dialogue writer. That yeah. guy cannot write dialogue to save his life. Okay, so yes. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, what I mean, though. You can watch it, and it's so cringy sometimes. It's funny, and it's awesome. And everyone... You don't like Anakin's speech about sand <laughs> you gotta get all my kids in a room and watch like uh uh what was it the the third one uh where he becomes vader so that where he's fighting with his <laughs> he's fight, fighting with uh, uh i'm getting all the names mixed up i'm gonna scratch this probably but um, <laughs> what's his what's his love interest uh padme padme yeah he's fighting with her and yeah, it's just I don't know, the dialogue is so bad. It's yes, it's it's, it's really bad. <laughs> but I will not watch it in a room with your kids because I will not allow people to trash my beloved Star Wars in front of me. But they're just love not it. gonna have it. They I'm love just it, not gonna though. have it. Um, I did watch Solo with Lindsay. I don't know if she told you that. Oh, cool. I did watch Solo with Lindsay. The first time she'd ever seen it. Okay, before anyway, we, so way before we wrap this up, um, yes. we have to do our Stump Jerome segment. So you have to explain what that is. Okay, the Stump Jerome segment. Is simply the six degrees of separation, also known as the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon which we've right. expanded to the six degrees of any two actors who's ever graced the the, the silver screen. Right now, let feature, me give let feature me, film. Let me give my preface to this, and we'll sure. somehow I'll have to work in a way where we can introduce this quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and flashier, a couple lines of dialogue. Yep. But the reason why this is what it is is because of my utter disdain for the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. The reason why I have utter disdain for it is because, again, it's my it's my belief, and I've yet to be proven wrong, that any two actors, forget about just Kevin Bacon, any two actors can be connected in Six Degrees, a degree being a movie, of course. And I challenge myself, the guys that do the Kevin Bacon thing, mm -hmm. they use TV shows, they yeah. use directors, I don't use none of that shit. You have to be in a feature-length film, an actor or actress in a feature-length film, and any two in the history of the world can be connected. I have yet to be found otherwise. Yeah. And All right, I, hit me. So the two actors from these movies that I chose was from the, the most recent, the new one, Promising Young Woman, I chose uh, Bo Burnham. And I wanted you to connect him to Christopher McDonald, the uh, husband in uh, Thelma and Louise. So, so, so this one's actually not difficult. Yeah. And, and, and much like the Kevin Bacon game, you have to find that one name yeah. that you feel has been in everything. Right. right. Uh, in this situation, that name is Brad Pitt. So right. because yeah. Brad Pitt was in Thelma and Louise. Right. Uh, well, Brad Pitt also produced and was in the big short and anyone that's seen the big short, which was a movie that was up for best picture a few years back. Uh, I want to say maybe six years ago. Has this movie been out for six years now? Something like that? Maybe, yeah. Um, they'll know that one of the 
uh, swindling housing market loan uh, mortgage guys uh, scumbags was Max Greenfield. Um, who, of course, is in Promising Young Woman with Bo Burnham. Wow. So, there uh, it is. How many and, is it? And Brad Pitt three? links to Christopher McDonald through Thumb and Louise. So, if so you got Thumb three? and Louise, The Big Short, uh, 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 Promising Young Woman. Is yes, there's three. 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 Yeah, Thumb, well done. four there for a minute. So, three. Well um, done. Now, for the audience here, um, the most famous, notorious connection that I ever had you do I threw, I was, I was trying to stump you so bad and I threw carrot top to, to Charlie Chaplin. Yes. And you did it is, in four? Four. It's, yeah. it's in four. It's actually not, again, you got to go for the name that you know is, that can attach either I one. I know, but you, but I just went for like the most current, like at the time, this is, that was a long time ago. I threw that at you. It was like 20 years ago almost. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin. And this was before. The internet. Ex- expansive <laughs> usage of the internet. I want to say it was before 20 years ago. It was... Uh, no, it was it like... Because I hired in a Chrysler in 99, and I was at Chrysler. So, it was maybe, okay. maybe 20, 21 years and, ago. and I was barely using Yahoo at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> I hadn't even heard of IMDb. Right. So, so this was all done... You know, th- this kind of stuff is done by uh, just uh, movie knowledge. Uh, yeah. For those that are sitting at home right now going well wait connect them how can that you got to tell us how you did it um charlie chaplin's last film which do you have this directed. do you have this in the vault or do you have it written down in front of you no this one's in the vault this, <laughs> because because it's my most favorite it's my favorite one it, it was called the countess of hong kong with marlon brando okay well it's actually marlon brando's movie but he appears in it because sure. he's the director charlie chaplin so charlie chaplin's in the film and of course, Marlon Brando is in uh, The Godfather with, uh, so that's one connection, The Countess of Hong Kong. Uh, Brando's in The Godfather that's with two. Al Pacino, who's in uh, And Justice for All with Jack Warden. That's three. Um, and Jack Warden is in Chairman of the Board, Carrot Top. <laughs> so there you go. Four. Four. So Pacino insane. is the link there. So you see, you got to find that one name that you yeah. know stretches across the universe. Um, yep. And yeah, so a degree is a film, uh, one degree is a film. But here's here's one thing I will say for anyone that wants to email or whatever to a stump Jerome. Yeah. I don't play the gotcha game. <laughs> and what I mean by that is people that will already know this obscure person is connected to this other's obscure person in maybe a movie that they were both in uh, 40 years ago as extras or something and they say hey try to connect these two and when i do it in four they're like i ah, got gotcha. you they're actually in the same movie yeah i don't play i don't play gotcha games okay <laughs> however point- however i would invite the listeners if you if you can connect these two actors in less than four degrees we'd like to hear from you which and i and i'll yeah. stand right here and tell you it can be done i guarantee you uh one that you gave me the other day uh was it earlier today just for fun uh, right off the top of my head, I, I went with about four, I think, four yeah. degrees. But I remember saying, I bet you could be done in less. Yeah. And sure enough, it was done in like two degrees. Right. Yeah. But, but, um, you know, my point is it, the the game isn't for you to try to play gotcha. Yeah. Right. Uh, the game is to try to prove that there's two people that cannot be connected. Right. Find right. me two people that cannot be connected. That's degrees. the game. Yeah. That's the game. The game isn't, oh, I'll find, uh, you know, Henry Winkler was in the background of a movie in 1972 that Robert Redford might have been in in one scene. And I'll see if he can connect Robert Redford to Henry Winkler. No, no, that's not. That's a gotcha game. I don't play the gotcha games. Yeah. Find me two that's never been a, that cannot be connected within six degrees. However, we would like to hear from our listeners, and yes. if you <laughs> so if you, you want to play the gotcha game, yeah, yeah, let's play. You know, let us know. Let us know how how you give me a gotcha game, but I won't like it. Yeah. So anyway, um, I think that was this episode. That's it. We're already over so, time. Um, what movies are we going to try to hit next time? Do you want to go there? I don't know yet. I've well, I've talked about the sound of metal because I love that movie when it when uh, we watched it before the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I don't know what other one to pair it up with. Um, um, if the, you went the, with the theme, could be on the hearing loss, I guess. If if you went with uh, hearing loss, well, that's a tough one. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking if you went more with uh, addiction and addiction, sobriety and recovery, Rockstar. you could pair it with yeah. you could pair it with uh, clean and sober. Clean and sober. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, um, there is a huge element to that that has to do with addiction and re- our recovery. Oh, community. absolutely. Yeah. Huge. So yeah, we could do that. We could do uh, clean and sober and uh, the sound of metal. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I would advise anyone that's going to listen to this podcast, go and see both of them. If you haven't seen Clean and Sober, which you might not have, it's a little known Michael Keaton movie from 1988. Uh, not a lot of people have seen it. Got zero nominations at the Oscars. I um, loved it. Yeah. But one of his best movies. Yeah. You know, one of Michael Keaton's best performances. Um, I want to say both uh, Siskel and Ebert gave it a thumbs up. In fact, I know they did. Because here's another little side trivia. I know we got to get going here. This is me. I always go off on tangents. The same, I want to say it was the same show that they both gave Clean and Sober a thumbs up is the show Roger Ebert gave Die Hard a thumbs down. Oh, my. If you can believe it. So <laughs> if you've ever made a choice, if you've ever made a decision in your life and you look back on it and say, that was the dumbest thing I ever did, console yourself with knowing that there was once a time where Roger Ebert gave Die Hard 1 a thumbs down. Right. So we all make mistakes in life. Yes. And I'll end it on that. That was a great place to end it. I want to thank you all for listening to the Silver Screen Happy Hour. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at silverscreenhappyhour at gmail.com. You can look us up on Instagram at silverscreenhappyhour. And try to stump Jerome. Um, if you want to throw a six degrees question at him, um, just remember that the actors have to have a role in a feature-length film that was on the big screen. And I'd love to see if you can stump him. We mentioned during the show that the next episode we would be discussing The Sound of Metal. And uh, we talked about pairing it up with Clean and Sober. Uh, That episode's actually recorded already. We actually went with um, Children of a Lesser God to pair up with Sound of Metal. Both fantastic films. I had a little criticism for Children of a Lesser God, but it was still a great film. Um, Go ahead and watch them uh, if you'd like before you listen to the next episode. Uh, Or if you just want a refresher, go ahead and uh, watch the trailers uh, for those two movies. Until next time, this is Chris Wiegand. Thanks for listening.